Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Ever since I did a podcast on the controversial pastor, Doug Wilson, out of Moscow, Idaho, a few years ago with journalist Mark Potok, I've always kept Wilson on my radar. After reading a 2004 article he wrote about Wilson and his ever-expanding religious empire on the Southern Poverty Law Center site, I contacted Mark to see if he'd want to discuss Wilson for that episode. And right off the bat, from the article itself, several things stood out to me about Wilson and his empire in Moscow. The controversy surrounding the 1996 book he co-authored with Stephen Wilkins called Southern Slavery as it was, and then a conference held on the book in February of 2004 at the University of Idaho in Moscow, at which both Wilson and Wilkins would be speaking about their book. As you can imagine, a subsequent firestorm ensued. From the article, Potok notes that, quote, in the months that followed, sparked by the flyers anonymously distributed by anti-racist activists, an uproar erupted that convulsed the campus, the town, and even the community around Washington State University, another huge school some eight miles away in Pullman, Washington. He goes on, before it was over, the presidents of both universities had condemned Wilson and Wilkins' book in unsparing terms, dozens of newspaper articles, editorials, Advertisements and letters to the editor had been printed, major demonstrations had been held, new anti-racist groups had formed, and a whole array of counter-events had been organized for the Wilson-Wilkins event. Few who lived in the Palouse, as the region is known, avoided the controversy. And Potok goes on, he says, The reason for the powerful reaction wasn't just that the two men had written a repulsive apologia for slavery and the antebellum South, More important was the fact that one of them, Doug Wilson, had been in Moscow for 30 years. And during those three decades, largely beneath the radar of his neighbors, Wilson had built a far-flung, far-right religious empire that included a college, an array of lower schools, an entire denomination of churches, and more. And Potok concludes, he says, at the same time, with longtime collaborator Wilkins, Wilson was developing a theology that married an enthusiastic endorsement of the antebellum South with ideas of religious government, an ideology now at the center of the neo-Confederate movement. Doug Wilson, it seems, was raising a religious army, end quote. In that episode with Mark, we discussed not only this controversial book and conference, we also touched base on that religious army that Wilson has apparently been building in Moscow for decades now. That reference to religious government that Mark mentioned is also it's an allusion to Wilson's beliefs in certain elements of Christian Reconstructionism, which I'll delve into in greater detail later in this episode. And as we'll see, many have likened Wilson to a cult leader for a wide variety of reasons. In the decades since he took over as leader of Christ Church in Moscow, it's worth noting that Wilson is no stranger to controversy. And in fact, he seems at times to go out of his way, not only to cause it, he appears to revel in it and he loves nothing more than getting into a social media argument. He had a famous one a few years ago, for example, with the late Rachel Held Evans, 
after she called him out on some of his offensive statements about women and rape culture. He seems to fit the profile of your typical online troll, actually, and less of a pastor. After doing even more research on Wilson over the last several months, I'm devoting at least two, maybe three episodes to this topic, as well as a discussion with returning guest David Johnson. And we, as we talk about Wilson and his Christian defense of slavery, I'm also going to be talking to Kate West about her involvement in homeschooling and the Doug Wilson connection there. All right, let's get on into the topic. Is Doug Wilson merely a misunderstood pastor or is he in fact a cult leader? of grains and grass, a battle without bullets over the direction of a town. I believe that what's happening in Moscow is a microcosm of what's happening all across the country that started here maybe 10 or 15 years earlier than what's happening across the country. And that is? Um, Well, just a radical division. I don't think our nation has been this divided since 1859. It's divided and it's inflamed. And uh, that whole process, I think, began to be visible here a decade or a decade and a half before it became radically visible in the nation as a whole. Pastor Doug Wilson leads Christ Church in what he calls a Cold War civil war. Our rights come to us from God and not from the government. Fighting in, of all places, a college town. Moscow, home to University of Idaho and just eight miles from Washington State University, exudes a live and let live vibe. One of the interesting things about Moscow is how these two entities live side by side, and I mean literally. Right behind me, that's the offices of the Christ Church, and right next door is the headquarters for the local Democratic Party. From this former art house movie theater, Wilson leads his campaign to make Moscow a Christian town. Idaho is a very red state. Moscow was historically a very blue dot in this red state. And so consequently, the fact that um, we've done this has been disruptive in the minds of some. But the feasibility of... um, um, evangelizing in Moscow had to do with the importance of the university and the size of the town. So in your version of a Christian town, would there be a place for non-believers? Oh, absolutely. Would would there be a place for same-sex couples? What, you mean legally? Yes. You you mean like uh, marriage? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, no marriage. But there'd be same-sex couples. No marriage, even though it's the law of the land in the United States? Uh, just like Roe used to be, right? In my uh, belief system, in our doctrinal stand, and what we believe the Bible teaches, homosexuality is not only a choice, but a sinful one. Yes. It is a muscular, masculine-led vision of Christianity. Scripture tells the man to provide, protect, and love. Scripture tells the woman to honor, help, and submit expounded on his show Man Rampant. Men are going to be dominant no matter what you do. And articulated in his blogs. This one saying marriage is a little kingdom and the husband is a little king. A wife should be should be submissive to her husband, as Paul teaches in multiple places, yes. So a wife should be submissive to her husband. But in the blog post that you just cited, um, I made a special point of saying that the woman exercises authority 
over the selection of the one that she's going to submit to. So when you say wives should be submissive to their husbands, does this mean, why shouldn't they be equal? Um, well, because God created us a certain way. So we want to fit with the design. Former Mayor Nancy Cheney says the community has endured decades of Wilson's often incendiary ideas. When some uh, kind of outrageous statements were made uh, early on about uh, Southern slavery as it was, as a, as a mutually affectionate relationship between master and slave, or saying that members of our LGBTQ community, uh, trans people, should be exiled or possibly stoned, that catches our attention. Wilson says he was misunderstood, rebutting the many controversies on his website, writing he does not believe in the death penalty for homosexual acts or that slavery was a positive good. But the visible and invisible lines being drawn here and elsewhere across the country are setting off alarm bells for many faith leaders. Do you consider Christ Church a church? I don't. Really? I really don't. What is it then? Um, I, I see it as, a, as a, a dominionist cult. What you just heard was an excerpt from a 2022 NBC expose on Moscow, Idaho and Doug Wilson. And of course, that was the man himself, Doug Wilson, speaking. And the residents of Moscow, as well as the mayor, warning about the takeover of the town, the intended takeover of Moscow, Idaho. And we're going to look more in detail at that in this episode. And I'm going to warn you, this is a really long episode. This is approaching Dan Carlin hardcore history levels here. And I've got so much research and information on Doug Wilson, I think I'm going to actually split it into looking at three episodes. In the first episode, we're going to look here at Doug Wilson, the man, his influences, what's his sort of backstory. The second episode is going to come up with Kate West, who is a survivor of the Doug Wilson sort of homeschooling Christian patriarchy movement, the stay-at-home daughters thing. Then we're going to look at Doug Wilson, the many scandals surrounding him. And then finally, we're going to look at Doug Wilson's influence, some of the people that he has now influenced and are spreading his toxic message. And then there's going to come an episode with David Johnson. We're going to be looking at this issue as mentioned in the that NBC clip that you just heard talking about Southern slavery as it was. We're going to be looking at this issue of a so-called Christian or biblical defense of slavery. So there's a lot coming on Doug Wilson and what he's up to in the next several episodes. But in this first episode, I'm going to focus mostly, as I say, exclusively on Doug Wilson, the man. What's his backstory? How did he come to be not only pastor of Christ Church, headquartered out of Moscow, Idaho, but also a major proponent of the so-called Christian Patriarchy Movement, or CPM, and an increasingly influential voice on such platforms as John Piper's Desiring God Network, the Cross Politic uh, podcast, and many other Christian shows. The issues I want to deal with are basically twofold. On the one hand, warning people, including good evangelical Christians, who might actually admire Wilson on some level. Maybe you see him as a no-nonsense, no-holds-barred, street-brawler type of theologian and pastor. Perhaps because you've only been exposed to certain aspects, maybe you hold to certain elements of his teachings. Or maybe you're a homeschooling parent who uses his curriculum, but you're unfamiliar with the wider context around his ministry, his controversial, some would even say heretical, theological views, or the many scandals that have been attached to him 
over the years. In other words, what I'm saying is that there's a very good chance that what you think you know about Wilson is either only partial knowledge or maybe you only know a little bit. While you may be familiar with some of the more scandalous or objectionable things he's done or said, I would bet that there'd be a lot of stuff in these two episodes or the ones we're doing with David Johnson and Kate West and maybe some others, things you've never heard of. Before we get too far into this episode, I want to mention a huge thank you to the Examining Doug Wilson Facebook page and Twitter account at Examining Moscow. What it is, this is a group of concerned conservative Christian pastors, church leaders, and others in that orbit who are helping to sound the alarm about Doug Wilson. Unfortunately, due to threats that some of them have received from either Wilson or those around him, no one from that account elected to be interviewed for these particular episodes. But having said that, some from the group have provided me with absolutely invaluable resources and insights into Wilson and his expanding empire. So getting back to Wilson, what exactly is my concern? Why am I speaking out about him? Well, as I mentioned, I did an episode on him a few years ago with Mark Potok. He's a journalist, formerly with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which, according to the feedback from that episode, it was a fairly comprehensive overview of Wilson and his ever-expanding religious empire in Moscow. So that's done. Why not just leave well enough alone? Well, as a quick answer to that question, that objection, in my continuing research about him and his church's attempts to take over Moscow, I've learned a lot more about him. And what I've found has proven to be even more disturbing than what I thought I knew going into the research. There's a couple of things we need to lay out before we begin looking at Doug Wilson. Now, although I'm an ex-evangelical, I'm no longer a Christian in my previous life, I was a pastor of a church in the Portland, Oregon area, as well as a Bible college teacher for more than 20 years. So I've been there, I've done that. I've Believe me, I've participated in more than one pastoral church committees. I've written papers in Bible college and seminary about the biblical qualifications for church leadership and eldership and so on. I know what I'm talking about on that level. Therefore, just on the face of it, on multiple levels, my initial argument, especially if you're an evangelical, is that Doug Wilson has no business being the senior pastor of a church. The more I learn about him, the more I believe that he's completely unqualified for any sort of ministry leadership positions for a variety of reasons that we'll get into. Now, although this doesn't necessarily disqualify one from church leadership, as we will see, there's right off the bat, there's an initial concern. Wilson has absolutely no formal academic training or higher education in either theological or biblical degrees. Now, he does hold both an undergraduate and a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Idaho. Despite, though, his lack of formal theological training, he's nonetheless considered by many to be highly qualified in the following areas, biblical interpretation, theology, and preaching, as a senior pastor of Christ Church, as a teacher at his new St. Andrews College, as a prolific blogger and writer on such platforms as Desiring God, as an author of numerous books and widely disseminated Christian homeschooling curriculum, as a speaker at Christian conferences and churches nationwide, and finally, as a widely consulted expert on a number of Christian shows and podcasts, which includes his own YouTube channel and his Amazon Prime show. While, of course, it's not essential that a person must earn degrees from a Bible college or a seminary to be considered as being qualified as a pastor or a teacher, but from a purely academic point of view, someone who claims to be self-taught or making use of what we call self-directed learning in any field of academics runs the risk of a number of dangers. Well, for a start, self-directed learning puts the burden on the learner to decide what he or she should read. Thus, one could waste a lot of time 
being exposed to irrelevant or faulty factual ideas, all the while missing out on some of the more important or scholarly topics, some of the authors, the experts in that particular field. One advantage of directed learning, we're talking about in a classroom setting, a formal, like a Bible college seminary or an academic setting, is that placing oneself underneath the tutelage of a professor or a lecturer who should ideally be an expert in that particular field, whatever you're studying, if you're doing that for the purposes of academic research, that allows the learner to be exposed to a wider range of points of views. Such a process thus ideally encourages critical reflection and analysis across a broad range, rather than just narrowly choosing specific authors or topics to read about, all the while ignoring other bodies of work. This could easily lead to confirmation bias, for example, and that's where new evidence is interpreted as merely confirming one's existing beliefs or theories, but you have no check or balance there in a self-directed learning context. In addition, in that self-directed learning environment, without peers and colleagues around you to compare ideas, discuss, and look at approaches to a particular subject or topic, one can easily struggle to maintain a breadth of learning. And then it'll be difficult to assess one's level of comprehension, too, on a subject without exams, without essays, papers, tests that are peer-evaluated or graded by objective third parties. In addition, it'll be difficult to discover what the missing pieces are in one's educational process if you're in the self-directed mode. So just from the outset, I'm a bit suspicious of the fact that Wilson may have a huge range of books on his library bookshelf. That may be true. But how narrow, how biased is that reading list? Who and what are influencing his theological worldview? On the other hand, if you're a Christian, if you're an evangelical, then one could easily make the objection, as I mentioned, that Doug Wilson isn't qualified to be a pastor or any type of church leader. And that's according to, as I read it, biblical guidelines. Some of the main passages in the New Testament advising readers on the qualities of a pastor or a church leader include 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. As we'll see, as we proceed on in this episode, I believe it's going to become more and more clear that Doug Wilson fails to adhere to those criteria on a number of levels. To list just a few examples, according to 1 Timothy 3.7, a pastor may must be well thought of by outsiders, that is, by non-believers. And as we'll see, Wilson has major, major controversies and major problems with the way he's viewed by those outside of Moscow and outside his church. Verse 2 of the same chapter states that he must be above reproach in his character. Or in other words, in every aspect of life, he should be an example for others to follow. And as we're going to see, there's major problems with Doug Wilson's character. Verse 3 says he shouldn't be quarrelsome. And we see he's a troll. He's an online troll. Or as Titus 1.7 says, he shouldn't be arrogant. And as we're going to see, especially when examining not just the many scandals around Wilson and how he's handled them, it's going to reveal a lot about his character. As we begin, I want to ask you if you even know who Wilson is. Now, you may be familiar with him as the pastor who co-wrote, as I mentioned, along with Stephen Wilkins, that hugely controversial book entitled Southern Slavery as it was in 1996. Now, this book was widely panned by actual, real historians who are experts in that era. It turned out to be nothing less than a full-throated so-called biblical defense or Christian defense of the pre-Civil War practice of Southern slave owners and slave owning, I should say. And the authors, by the way, were shown to have made extensive use of plagiarism as well. Or maybe you heard of his 2020 book, Ride, Sally Ride, Sex Rules, a novel. 
If you haven't, let me give you a brief overview. It's a novel set in that dystopian future of 2024, because obviously 2024 is just so far into the future. This all could happen. It's apparently a blatant ripoff of Isaac Asimov's 1983 book, The Robots of Dawn. Again, we see that Wilson is familiar with the idea of plagiarism. In the novel, Wilson describes a young Christian man named Ace. And I love that name, Ace. I wish my name was Ace, don't you? That's such a cool name. Anyway, so Ace is righteously outraged at his neighbor's vile relationship with a sex robot named Sally. And he ends up getting hauled up before the authorities on a murder rap for dumping her into a trash compactor. And it just goes on from there. That's a totally normal subject for a pastor to be writing about, isn't it? Well, thankfully, it's, it's not weird at all. Or maybe you're familiar with some of the shocking, positively Neanderthal statements Doug Wilson has made about men and women and their roles that reveals some of the toxicity behind his complementary views, or complementarian views, I should say, of biblical patriarchy. The following are just a quick sample to give you a brief overview of his notion of gender roles and their differences, and by, by no means is this an exhaustive list. Wilson once stated that, quote, a man penetrates, conquers, colonizes, plants. A woman receives, surrenders, accepts, end quote. Once when he was citing New Testament author Paul's description of how God apparently set up the distinctive gender roles between men and women, at least in the church anyway, Wilson declared that, quote, Godly women want to feed their men. Godly women are designed to make the sandwiches, end quote. And I've heard more Christian men say that. Go make me a sandwich to their wives or girlfriends. So this is the kind of idea that, that you get this from, from a guy like Doug Wilson. And in my final example, when he was giving single Christian women marital advice on what to look for in a man, he titles himself Uncle Doug at the conclusion of his blog post, which is titled The Law or Laws of Attraction. Now, again, that's it's not creepy at all, is it? Toward the end of the post, he advises that single Christian woman under the category prayer requests slash luck of the draw that her prospective husband should, quote, be aggressive enough and well endowed enough to satisfy you sexually, end quote. But surely this is extremely bizarre advice, given that in Wilson's purity culture system, operating from within a courtship model, good Christian women are to be virgins at the marriage altar. So how is that poor woman to know if her prospective mate has enough going on down there to get the job done on their wedding night? It seems to me like really confusing and conflicted advice. I guess that's why asking God, praying to God for a mate who's well endowed enough, I guess that needs to make it onto that single lady's prayer request list. And it's just her luck of the draw if his manhood and her, and her uh, husband isn't sufficiently up to the job on their wedding night. Now, just a word of advice, though, if you're a single Christian woman, don't bring this up during the prayer time at the single women's church retreat this weekend, though. And remember how he signed off the post? I mean, what better person than one's uncle to give his single niece such creepy marital advice? And remember, this guy's a pastor who says these kind of things to women. And this is from Doug Wilson's own personal blog, blog and mablog at dougwills.com. Now, if we zoom out from some of these disturbing issues, which we barely touched on, we've got to address another far more pressing concern that I mentioned already. Is Doug Wilson running a cult? Is he a cult leader? Should Christchurch's attempts to take over the town of Moscow, Idaho, be interpreted as his efforts to establish dominion over his sprawling religious empire? 
Now, one major problem with charging Wilson with running a cult empire, however, is that on the face of it, his Moscow adherents don't engage in anything overtly destructive. Now, as far as I know, he and his followers aren't busy making bombs to blow up federal buildings or stockpiling guns on a compound somewhere like the Branch Davidians, Branch Davidians did in Waco, Texas. Now, I'm going to mention, though, we're going to look at this later, there's a lot of connections with Doug Wilson, Christchurch, and the so-called American Redoubt. So there is something there, for sure. We're going to touch on that later. Now, but as far as I know, uh, Wilson's followers are not planning to commit mass suicide as some kind of bizarre statement of their beliefs, like Jonestown or Heaven's Gate. In fact, it's the very normalcy of his followers that stands out. Now, according to the site, What Doug Wilson Believes, which is dedicated to providing numerous resources of Wilson's teachings, in his own words, in context, on a variety of topics, the author comments on this very thing on the About page. It states that, quote, If you live in Moscow, it can be easy to assume that Doug Wilson is the leader of a community of happy, well-dressed families with well-behaved children who make good neighbors, build nice buildings, run a few nice restaurants, and have an affinity for pipe smoking. These things are, of course, all true. But it goes on, he says that that community is also led by a man with well-documented views that many of us would find outlandish, views that could be accurately categorized as white nationalist, misogynistic, homophobic, and hate-filled, end quote. At the conclusion of this episode, I'm going to return to this question of whether or not Doug Wilson is running a cult, and I'm going to compare some of the known practices and tactics that he uses uh, together with well-known descriptors of established cults, and I'll let you be the judge. And as we'll see, as we progress further into this topic, there's even more charges that can be laid at Doug Wilson's door than I've already mentioned, and we may not even get to all of them. I mean, the ones I've just talked about, those are just the tip of the iceberg. All right, but let's go back to his career. Ever since he took over the church as head pastor of Christ Church in 1977, Wilson has been a very exceptionally busy man indeed. Aside from his church's controversial vision of making Moscow a Christian town, which I think many have likened to a cult takeover, similar to the Bagwan in Antelope, Oregon years ago, in the successive decades, he's managed to create a sprawling religious empire that includes the following. For example, founding the Logos, K-12 Christian School, which, according to his former University of Idaho professor Nick Gear, has over 204 affiliated schools nationwide and also located in Nigeria and Indonesia. Wilson's 1991 book, which is titled Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, was modeled after Dorothy Sayers' 1947 book, The Lost Tools of Learning. And this book is widely credited with kickstarting the so-called classical Christian school model of Christian day schools that has a number of similar schools operating across the country, as well as numerous Christian homeschoolers who also adopt the model. Rachel Green Miller on her blog comments that, quote, one of the largest and best known movements within Christian education is classical Christian education, or CCE. She goes on, CCE is popular with both private schools and homeschoolers, there are several publishing houses that produce CCE curricula, whole networks of CCE schools, and a number of CCE programs available for interested parents, end quote. In this context, 
Wilson also helped to found the Association of Classical and Christian Schools, or ACCS, in 1994. He also served as the editor of the Omnibus Christian Curriculum, which is widely distributed nationwide, both in the classical Christian schools and among homeschoolers. Now, incidentally, uh, I mentioned Rachel Green Miller. Now, herself, she's a Christian homeschooling mother. She's done a huge amount of work dissecting this curricula, which is a six-volume history textbook intended for students in grades 7 through 12. Now, she's demonstrated conclusively that Wilson, along with the other contributors to the Omnibus curriculum, are A, not experts in their respective field, but somehow, nonetheless, have managed to write a comprehensive series of textbooks designed for students. And B, more concerningly, there's a huge amount of plagiarism involved also in the set. But we will get more into that later. But as we've already noted, Wilson is no stranger to the charge of plagiarism. That's come up a couple times already. Now, I do want to say one thing about that. While we're on the topic of plagiarism, if you've listened to the Christianity Today podcast series on the fall of Mark Driscoll and the subsequent collapse of his Mars Hill Seattle church empire, you'll recall that it was Driscoll's use of plagiarism in some of his best-selling books that was one contributing factor to his ultimate downfall. Now, this, of course, is along with his abusive sort of cult leadership style and misuse of church funds to promote one of his books on the New York Times bestseller list, among other things. So far, Wilson has been able to dodge every charge of plagiarism that he's been clearly proven to engage in by multiple scholars in his works. Now, there's an interesting article by Wenatchee the Hatchet on this subject. And basically, the argument is that there's an eerie number of parallels between the two pastors, Mark Driscoll and Doug Wilson. According to Wenatchee the Hatchet, though, Wilson only wishes that he were as cool as Driscoll was in his heyday at Mars Hill. That both pastors made blatant use of plagiarism in their works. That's an interesting thing to point out. And as mentioned, we're going to touch more on that later. Now, going back to Wilson, his interest in education also led him to found both the New St. Andrews Academy Bible College and the Gray Friars Hall Pastoral Training Seminary in Moscow. Many graduates of these two institutions, they then go out and plant new churches following his Christchurch model. So he's getting more and more of an influence nationwide and even worldwide. Finally, he's also established Canon Press. It's an in-house publisher which not only disseminates his many books, but also those influencers within his orbit. But many questions still remain about Wilson the man. On the face of it, Wilson's very careful with his admissions as to who his influences and to his theological influences specifically, who they exactly are. Now, I mentioned earlier, he's got no degree from a Bible college or a seminary. He's got no higher education, but he's viewed by a great many people as a wise pastor, a Bible college professor, an author, conference speaker, and a preacher. What exactly is he, though? What are his theological distinctives? Now, you could say he's just a misunderstood. He's a good-hearted Christian pastor in Moscow, Idaho. He's doing his level best to, to get the good news of the gospel as he sees it, not only to the town, but out to the rest of the world. But maybe there's some other questions. Is he a card-carrying Christian reconstructionist? Is he a theonomist who wants to institute biblical law on civil society? Perhaps, as I mentioned a bit ago, maybe he's a cult leader. He's building an empire with a view to taking over the city of Moscow and ultimately the world. Is he a spreader of toxic theology such as biblical patriarchy, general equity theonomy, and federal vision? Now, you may have never even heard of any of those, but we're going to dive into them 
later on. And as we'll see in this episode, as we focus more exclusively on Wilson and his twisted teachings and theology, along the way, we're going to take note of the many scandals that have been attached to him over the decades. And I, I probably am going to miss out on a few. I just don't have time. Victims of his toxic system and his cult-like empire are now speaking up. And there are a great number of journalists, bloggers, Christian homeschoolers, conservative evangelical pastors who are, to put it very mildly, really, really concerned about Doug Wilson and how all-pervasive his influence has become right through the mainstream of evangelicalism. And as I mentioned, I'm no longer a Christian anymore, as I read the biblical text anyway. And in my opinion, as I said earlier, at least on the face of it, as, as a pastor, as a former pastor and Bible college professor, to me, as I see it, Wilson in no way, shape, or form fits the biblical criteria of being a pastor or a church leader. In his wake, over the decades, he and his affiliated ministries have led a trail, a left a trail of broken victims who, as I mentioned, are just now speaking out about the abuses that they suffered. As we'll see, I think it's indisputably clear that due to his malign influence, Wilson's running of his empire has resulted in a number of people suffering terrible abuses. All right, let's take a closer look at Doug Wilson, the man. Who exactly is Doug Wilson? Let's give you a quick picture. In a Vice article on Doug Wilson, Sarah Stanker stated, quote, Cigar puffing and presenting like a Christian philosopher king on YouTube videos, Pastor Doug Wilson is a radical provocateur, even among outspoken Christian conservatives, and appears to relish Twitter wars and blog battles. In the 1970s, he became pastor of Christchurch, which is now influential within the communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, a denomination Wilson helped found that includes more than 100 churches nationally. She goes on, In 2003, 94 ecclesiastical charges were brought against Wilson by his denomination from improperly using church funds to pay off students' casino debts to carnal threatening of others, but the charges were ultimately dropped, end quote. Ironic indeed, isn't it? It was this very Vice article that led Wilson to write a few acidic responses to it on his personal site, which I mentioned earlier called Blog and Mablog. Now, we're going to get more into that later, but it's clear, as she mentions, that Wilson fancies himself as a great writer and a communicator who loves nothing more than taking his critics to task on his own personal platforms. In fact, he describes his approach to writing and communication as, quote, theology that bites back. Rod Dreher, with whom he's had more than a few run-ins, in a 2020 American conservative article calls him a, quote, bomb-throwing Calvinist and goes on to describe him as follows. Dreher says, quote, Doug Wilson is the kind of pastor who preaches and writes as if he believes that pugnacity is next to godliness. He is a powerful rhetorician and can be quite funny, but humility is not his strong suit, end quote. While he comes across, indeed, as fairly well-spoken and articulate, Wilson does delight in basically trolling people he disagrees with. He loves nothing more than getting into online battles with perceived enemies who dare to criticize anything controversial or outrageous he's done or said. And he's done a lot and said a lot. So how exactly did Doug Wilson end up in Moscow? As far as I can tell, he seemed to have landed there when his father, one James Wilson, resigned his Navy commission in the 1950s and moved to Pullman, Washington, which is just across the border from Moscow, Idaho. And it's the home of a major university, as we mentioned already, Washington State University. 
James came there in part to found a Christian bookstore called One Way Books in Pullman, and then not long after, Crossroads Books in Moscow. Moscow, by the way, I think I mentioned this earlier, it's the home to the University of Idaho. And as I mentioned before, Nick Gear met Doug Wilson there in 1975 when he was a young student in his Introduction to Philosophy class. After introducing himself, Wilson asked Gear, is it okay if I defend my faith in this class? And of course, Gear said yes, which he came to regret later. Now, beyond a commitment to combative apologetics, where did Doug Wilson get his ideas about making Moscow a Christian town? His professor, Gear, comments that, quote, In 1954, Wilson, that's Jim, his dad, started writing a small book that would have, that would have the title Principles of War, a handbook on strategic evangelism, first published in 1964. He thought that college towns, especially those with state universities, would be both strategic and feasible evangelistic targets. In a recent interview, uh, Gear goes on to say, Jim Wilson said that he was fortunate to find two such towns and universities so close together. With some relish, he recalled the thought he had then. Now, quoting Jim Wilson, we could fight one battle and win two states for Christ. Thus, many credit the book by his father as providing the impetus behind Doug Wilson's desire to win Moscow for Christ, end quote. While Jim Wilson sold Christian books in Pullman and Moscow, he also became the pastor of Pullman's Evangelical Free Church. At the same time, Gear and Wilson were at that time having fairly friendly debates on various topics at the University of Idaho, both in and out of the classroom, and he continued to take multiple philosophy courses taught by Gear. And as I mentioned, that article on the Southern Poverty Law Center, that was one of the first, if not the first, to shine a light on what was happening in Moscow. Journalist Mark Potok commented on Doug Wilson's origins that in 1977, Wilson was given the chance to preach a sermon for the former pastor of the church who had recently moved. That, in turn, led to a permanent gig, and he's been the pastor of Christ Church ever since. Of course, although that wasn't the original name of the church. Now, after graduating with what Gear calls a, a fairly respectable MA thesis on the topic of free will, he goes on to note that Doug Wilson, quote, returned to his local ministry at Faith Fellowship, later renamed Community Evangelical Fellowship, or CEF. Faith Fellowship started as sister church of Pullman's Evangelical Free Church, end quote. So how did CEF become Christ Church? Now, Gear has a long statement on this, and how that came about starts to demonstrate some of the very problematic aspects of Wilson's theological commitments, leadership methods, and maintenance of his power. Gear documents what happened. He says, quote, In December of 1993, the CEF elders, concerned about doctrinal shifts in Wilson's theology, presented him with an ultimatum that he either conform to the CEF statement of faith or resign as pastor. There was also a dispute about Wilson mixing church and non-church funds. Wilson organized church members against the elders and successfully outmaneuvered them. And Gear goes on, he says, in order to validate his usurpation of power, Wilson drafted a letter attesting to his godly character and his qualifications to remain pastor. Even though the elders refused to sign the document, Wilson and his closest associates continued to swear until July 2003 that the signatures were obtained. Two of the three elders then resigned in disgust. And Gear goes on. With the dissenters gone, Wilson moved forward with changing the name of his church to Christ Church. 
and he pushed his own doctrinal agenda, including infant baptism and pedo communion, the rare practice of giving children the consecrated wine and bread. This was a dramatic change, considering the fact that from its very beginning, CEF was Arminian, that is, non-Calvinist and Baptist. And Gear goes on. He says, in February 2003, two Christchurch members brought solemn charges, a 108-page document against Wilson for maladministration, pastoral abuse, and doctrinal errors, and the unsigned document of December 1993 reemerged as an issue. Wilson demanded that members of Pullman's Evangelical Free Church, EFC, investigate some of the charges. When EFC members asked to see the signed letter, no one in Christchurch could produce the goods. Six months later, the Christchurch website contained a statement conceding that the CEF elders' signatures were never explained. And he concludes, To this day, all that Wilson can muster as an explanation is that he corrected the mistake as soon as it was discovered. Soon, defined in this case as 127 months, end quote. Gear's revelation about Wilson's takeover of Christchurch shows that even from his early days and his early leadership of the church, Wilson seemed to be more interested in taking power by whatever means necessary. And I ask, what does this incident or incidents reveal, therefore, about his character? Now, if we look at Moscow today, Christchurch members are known as Kirkers around Moscow. Bizarrely, uh, and a lot of Wilson's organizations are modeled after Scottish terminology or places. Kirk, of course, is Gaelic for church. New St. Andrews, St. Andrews, Scotland. Greyfriars is in Edinburgh. Some have speculated this, uh, that this obsession of Wilson's with Scottish terminology or place names, it lends he and his organizations an air of academic respectability and credibility that in actual fact he and they don't actually possess. In fact, D. Parsons, in a 2016 article on the Wartburg Watch website, makes this very point when she claims that, quote, Wilson is a bot of a character. He appears to fancy himself an Oxford Don. He set up a church, which he calls a Kirk, that he fashions after the Church of Scotland in Moscow, Idaho. His web address is http www.christkirk.com. It was observed, she says, by a commenter from Moscow that a number of Wilson's students in his college, called St. Andrews, of course, are often seen wandering around Moscow, wearing bowler hats, black robes, and sporting canes, apparently channeling their leader's Oxford Dawn obsession, end quote. As mentioned earlier, during his tenure as the leader of Christ's church since the early or late 70s, Wilson has been very busy indeed, laying the groundwork for establishing dominion over the last four decades. This involves, as I mentioned, not just his church's attempts to take over Moscow, but other parts of the USA as well. In a Daily Cost article on Wilson's empire, David Newark comments that, quote, Wilson's domineering evangelical church, which buys up property and businesses all through the Leyte County community and bullies both members and non-members who question either his edicts or his far-right theology, is built on a fundamentally misogynist worldview that permits male members to rape their wives and threatens any women who object, end quote. One major problem that many have noted is that a number of conservative evangelicals across America responding to Wilson's messaging have decided to up stakes, sell everything, and move to Moscow to be a part of his growing empire. As we'll see, there's a number of reasons for this, 
but it's a growing concern that Wilson is attracting people who want to settle in Moscow or in that area and become a part of his growing movement to help him take dominion, first over Moscow, then the wider world. In a religion news article, Crawford Gribben, who wrote a book on re Christian Reconstructionism in the Pacific Northwest, comments on Wilson's growing empire. He says, quote, For the past 30 years, believers from across the United States and beyond have been gathering in Moscow, a city in northern Idaho, with a population of around 25,000. Gribben goes on, he says, Here, as part of the Christchurch congregation, they have set their face against the cultures of American modernity, guided by a controversial social theory known as Christian Reconstruction, which holds that biblical law should apply in today's setting, they look to the Bible to understand how they believe American institutions should be reformed. He concludes, Followers believe that abortion rights and same-sex marriage, among other evidences of what they would see as moral decline, will eventually be repealed. Their goal is simple, the conversion of the people of Moscow to their way of thinking as the first step toward the conversion of the world, end quote. In a Guardian investigation of Wilson's empire in 2021, journalist Jason Wilson, who's no relation of Doug Wilson, he also noted that as Doug Wilson has been, has been tightening his grip on both his empire and the city of Moscow over the decades since he took over Christchurch, he's done so using a classic cult leader and dictator tactic, nepotism, which is the favoring of relatives for key leadership positions over others who are more qualified. It's a time-honored practice. It goes back as far as the Renaissance popes. We see dictators do this all the time. They often place family members, <laughs> including illegitimate children fathered by their mistresses, into key leadership positions. Why do they do it? To strengthen their grip on power and to maintain control. And Moscow, just like a mafia don, Wilson rules as the king over the whole enterprise placing family members in key leadership positions. Consider the following. As Jason Wilson lays it out, he says, quote, At NSAC, that's New St. Andrews College, for example, the college president is Wilson's son-in-law, Ben Merkel. Another son-in-law, Luke Jankovich, sits on the board of trustees, as does Wilson himself and Christchurch's associate pastor, Toby Sumter. Douglas Wilson is also on the faculty at NSAC, and is listed as a senior fellow in theology. Also on the faculty are his son Nathan, or N.D. Wilson, a fellow of literature, and his brother Gordon Wilson, a self-described young earth creationist who believes God created the earth in seven days. He's a senior fellow of natural history. According to tax filings, Merkel and Gordon Wilson each draw salaries from the college which lists tuition and costs for undergraduate students at $19,900 per year. Merkel, Jankovic, and all three Wilson men are also elders at Christ Church, along with a founding director and former trustee at NSAC, Moscow resident Andrew Krapischetz. And he goes on, Until June 2021, when the company was acquired by a competitor, Krapischetz had been chief executives of Moscow's largest private employer, EMSI for more than 19 years. And Wilson concludes, he says, during that period, EMSI was a major employer of NSAC graduates. According to LinkedIn data, there are 55 current employees at EMSI who are NSAC graduates from a college that's only graduated only 635 people throughout its history, end quote. There's even more evidence of nepotism. Wilson's wife, Nancy, oftentimes speaks alongside him at many conferences 
and has also written a number of books published on Wilson's Canon Press label. His daughter Rachel is married to Luke Jankovich. His other daughter Rebecca or Becca is married to Ben Merkel. Both women have written books published by Canon Press. For example, Becca Merkel wrote Eve in Exile and the Restoration of Femininity. There's even a documentary film by the same name, which, of course, you can access on the Canon Plus streaming service for just 99 cents for the first month. Both daughters appear to buy into Wilson's Christian patriarchy model, and both have had written responses to Rachel Held Evans's critiques of Wilson that I mentioned earlier. Both daughters vigorously defended their father's controversial statements about both women and biblical patriarchy and against the charges that he's a racist. In their attacks on Evans, they borrowed their father's patented serrated edge writing style, condescendingly characterizing Evans as an emotionally out-of-control woman, a, quote, outraged feminist using her shrill, squeaky voice. Doug Wilson was also instrumental, as we mentioned before, in starting the CREC denomination, which is the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, somewhere around 1997-98. But he didn't just start it. He utilized nepotism to consolidate his power over it. As I mentioned, that Twitter account, at Examining Moscow, which is that group dedicated to sounding the alarm about Wilson and his religious empire, they tweeted out the following statement in August 2022, quote, Doug Wilson set up his own denomination, the CREC, then stacked it with family members, former students, and loyalists. Even today, the current president is a former student. Cronyism and nepotism, the fix is in, end quote. Wilson's practice of nepotism is is nothing new, however. As far back as 2016, journalist Ulysses, a pseudonym used no doubt to protect his or her identity, writing on the Truth About Moscow ID site, picked up on Wilson's use of the practice to secure his influence throughout his empire. Ulysses noted that, quote, Christchurch, Moscow, is conducting an election for officers this month, and the ballot includes... Nate Wilson, son of Pastor Doug Wilson. They listed his name first. Presumably, they believe he is apt to teach, 1 Timothy 3.2, because he teaches at New St. Andrews College, though others may believe that one nepotistic title paved the way for another. I do not believe, Ulysses says, that he meets any other qualification. And it goes on, upon election, Andy Wilson will join two other Wilson relatives on the Kirk Board of Elders, Gordon Wilson, brother of Douglas, and Ben Merkel, son-in-law of Douglas. Like Nate Wilson, both men enjoy gainful employment at New St. Andrews College. Gordon Wilson is senior fellow of natural history, and Ben Merkel is president. And it goes on. To put this in perspective, Doug Wilson has three children, N.D. Wilson, Rebecca, and Rachel, who also goes by Lizzie. Rebecca married, married Ben Merkel, who's president of New St. Andrews College, NSA, and who also sits on the Christchurch Board of Elders. Mr. Wilson's daughter, married Luke, Rachel, married Luke Jankovich, who holds the title permanent member on the NSA Board of Directors despite the absence of qualifying academic credentials, end quote. Look at this nepotism. In 2013, Christchurch sold Canon Press to Andy Wilson, Doug's son, which is a true money-making operation with annual sales at the time topping a million dollars. Kirk officials either winked at this clear conflict of interest or maybe they were simply cowed into making the move by the senior Wilson. Ulysses goes on to comment that, quote, 10 years ago, Douglas Wilson admitted and justified 
his nepotistic streak. Now, quoting from Wilson's blog and May blog, Wilson said, uh, as a rule of thumb, and after much observation, I think that in our case, it has usually worked out this way. Relatives of mine have to work half as hard to get the interview and four times as hard to prove themselves. And his blog post was called Dat Old Devil Nepotism. And Ulysses goes on saying, Mr. Wilson wrote this in March 2006, long before he placed relatives in critical positions on each of his boards. At that time, he felt heat because he hired his son and his brother as professors of NSA. Now, however, he's ditched any pretense of integrity. Relatives and cronies occupy vital seats throughout his domain, much like a papal dynasty or a Sicilian. He guarantees their income. They watch his best interest. Quid pro quo, end quote. In addition to his widespread nepotism and cronyism, Wilson additionally maintains control over his empires in two other ways, according to Stankerb in that Vice article I mentioned earlier. Beyond the consistent indoctrination of his followers via his biblical patriarchy theological model, Wilson regularly makes use of Robert J. Lifton's classic dispensing of existence cult tactic of shunning. And she says, quote, As Wilson has built out the church's holding, he has protected his empire through theology that demands submission and church discipline, and for those who do not comply, excommunication, and occasionally online bullying. She goes on, For Kirkers, speaking up takes courage. There is a regular section in the printed church bulletin listing the names of those who have strayed. As one former member describes, a list of the excommunicated, along with a prayer request for repentance from sin. It functionally serves as a record of people whom Kirkers ice out. Families cut off loved ones over leaving the church. Others, she says, lash out against ex-members with harassment. Small businesses suddenly lose customers. And while it's hard to prove a boycott, the timing suggests as much. The tight-knit Christchurch community, which provides so much, she says, can also be quickly taken away, end quote. Writing in the Sandpoint Reader, journalist Katie Botkin noted in a 2016 article reporting on Wilson's domain in Moscow that, quote, Wilson seemingly relishes controversy with the wider world, but discourages it within his church. In fact, he appears to expect his congregants and potentially other pastors within the CREC to defer to his wisdom and seek his advice on matters of business and law. And some have said he threatened them and their businesses when they did not comply. In the now defunct Justice Primer, co-written by fellow CREC pastor Randy Booth and also pulled for plagiarism, Wilson states that pastors should get to decide if calling the cops is a good idea, regardless of what the law says on the matter. Now, quoting Wilson, she says that he said, church leaders make judgment calls regarding which sins rise to the level of crimes. And she concludes, this has played out in a couple of sex scandals within Wilson's own church, where Wilson wrote letters to the court asking for sentencing leniency, end quote. We're going to take a much deeper dive into those two highly disturbing scandals and Wilson's role in them later on. Now, going back to his decades of leadership of Christchurch, in that SPLC article I mentioned earlier, Mark Potok lays out just how much Wilson has actually accomplished in the intervening years since he took over. And it demonstrates just how powerful and how far-reaching Wilson's influence has become. Potok states that since his takeover of Christchurch, quote, over the following decades, Wilson built up an empire. 
He created the Logos School in Moscow, a private Christian academy that is a template for Wilson's classical schools movement and instructs students in Greek and Latin. He formed the Association of Classical and Christian Schools as a kind of accrediting agency for such schools, and since then, some 165 schools with curriculums similar to that of Logos have been started around the country. And of course, there's even more now, isn't there? And Potok goes on, he says, many of them, along with thousands of homeschoolers, order their books from yet another Moscow-based Wilson creation, Canon Press. The firm has published and sells 31 books by Wilson. Of course, again, it's more now, I'm sure. Wilson, he goes on to say, also helped start the Confederation of Reformed Evangelicals, CRE, the denomination that includes Christ Church and some 20 other churches with similar ideas. At his own church, Wilson created a three-year training program for ministers, Greyfriars Hall. Graduates who must promise to engage in cultural reformation have started several churches around the country. And Potok concludes, he says, And in 1994, Wilson's Christ Church founded the New St. Andrews College, a Moscow institution that teaches Wilson's brand of Christianity and now has an enrollment of about 120 students. On its website, he says, the college treats Rush Dooney and Dabney as foundational thinkers on the order of Plato and Aristotle. And I'm just going to say, if you don't know who either of those men were, we're going to delve into them in a little bit. And Potok concludes, he says, many Moscow residents say that the college like Wilson's Logos School and Christchurch, also has shown a strong taste for the Confederacy with paintings of Civil War Confederate heroes and the like. Some parents have reported that the Logos School celebrates the birthday of General Robert E. Lee, another hero in the Confederate pantheon, end quote. In that religion news piece, Crawford Gribben picks up the historical thread when he notes Wilson's growing influence. He says, quote, in Moscow, the community has established churches, a classical Christian school, a liberal arts college, a music conservatory, a publishing house, and the makings of a media empire, with books published by major trade and academic presses and a talk show on Amazon Prime. The community is setting the agenda for a theologically vigorous and politically reactionary evangelical revival. These believers are led by conservative pastor Douglas Wilson whose views on gender, marriage, and many other topics are controversial, even among the most conservative Christians. For over 30 years, Wilson has been campaigning against the influence of everything from atheism to feminism, end quote. Wilson, he claims to be a Presbyterian, but he actually isn't. Presbyterians won't accept him. And in fact, the Presbyterian Church of the United States, PCUSA, charged him years ago with heresy over his federal vision theology. And we'll get a little bit more into that later. He's groomed Baptists into his network, too. Jared Longshore is a former Baptist who's now one of the pastors at Christ Church. Some influencers who help spread his reach and his work include James White and senior pastor Jeff Durbin out of Apologia Church in Arizona, Marcus Pittman of Lure TV, pastors Brian Salve, C.R. Wiley, and Michael Foster, the Cross Politic podcast and the associated Fight, Laugh, Feast network, and conferences, the 21 Conference and its connections to the Manosphere and Patriarchy, and we're going to get more into that later. And finally, John Piper, as I mentioned before, and the Desiring God Network. They've platformed Wilson too. It could be argued that in the case of these new, young, up-and-coming pastors and theologians, 
Wilson's kind of groomed them for the new generation of leadership as he's now approaching his old age and is looking to establish new voices to promote his theology and his worldview. Now, I want to take a minute and look at this issue of the American Redoubt. I mentioned it earlier. Is Doug Wilson affiliated with the American Redoubt or the AR movement? Now, on the face of it, Wilson's not a survivalist. He's not a militia prepper type guy, doomsday guy. He doesn't actively preach or promote the idea of the American Redoubt. However, having said that, he's made many controversial statements about the role and authority of government. And a few years ago, he and his church garnered publicity for participating in an anti-mask, an anti-COVID mask demonstration in downtown Moscow. In a 2021 Guardian piece I mentioned earlier investigating Wilson's church, journalist Jason Wilson comments on the face of it, though Wilson isn't actively promoting the American Redoubt as part of his overall strategy, nonetheless Christ Church is attracting a number of people to that area who buy into some or all of the American Redoubt ideology. Wilson says that, quote, Christ Church was founded in Moscow in the 1990s, and experts who have studied the church estimate the size of the congregation and its offshoot churches at about 2,000, or 10% of the city's total population. He concludes by saying, but they also say that the church is increasingly drawing people to the area who are attracted to the idea of northern Idaho as a conservative redoubt against American modernity and by the church's reconstructionist position, which holds that the world would need to be governed according to their interpretation of biblical morality before Christ returns to earth, end quote. But what exactly is the American redoubt? Well, it's a survivalist movement ostensibly begun by a certain James Wesley Rawls. Now, according to his bio, he's a conservative Christian and a former U.S. Army intelligence officer. He hosts the survivalblog.com network. He's written numerous prepper types of books. His article, The American Redoubt, Move to the Mountain States, originally published on March 28, 2011, was according to him anyway, what launched the American Redoubt movement. You can look that up. It's a blog post called Introduction to the American Redoubt Internal Migration Movement on the survivalblog.com site. Rawls believes that America is facing a coming inevitable collapse, and as a result, all liberty-minded individuals should move to the American Redoubt while they still can before it all comes crashing down. The American Redoubt is thus what he believes is an ideal safe haven area comprising the states of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Eastern Oregon, and Eastern Washington. In his view, the area is more easily defendable if it ever comes down to a shooting war. Of course, he advises American Redoubt residents to stock up on food, supplies, guns, and ammo, and generally prepare for the end, and to live off the grid as much as possible on your own plot of land that you own. Rawls claims to be a separatist, but strictly along religious lines. In this way, he believes he would avoid being charged a racist or a white supremacist. In that article, he states, quote, I am a separatist, but on religious lines, not racial ones, I've made it abundantly clear throughout the course of my writings that I am anti-racist. Christians of all races are welcome to be my neighbors. I also welcome Orthodox Jews and Messianic Jews because we share the same moral framework. In calamitous times, with a few exceptions, it will only be the God-fearing that will continue to be law-abiding. Choose your locale wisely, end quote, he says. 
Rawls advocates that those who move to the American readout from other states should sell everything they own, as of course they're never ever going back, and buy land. They need to use the barter system or hard currency, you know, precious metals and things like that, rather than a bank. He advises that American readout residents should be active in homeschooling co-ops and service organizations, stock up with plenty of food, and definitely have an arsenal of guns and ammunition to defend your property and your stores. Perhaps unsurprisingly, he's also a fervent Christian nationalist. And he stated, quote, In conclusion, I am hopeful that it is in God's providential will to extend his covenantal blessings to the American readout. And even if God has withdrawn his blessings from our nation as a whole, he will continue to provide for and to protect his remnants. Pray and meditate on Psalm 91 daily, quote, unquote. That's his advice. Rawls also promotes the idea that American Redoubt residents, a great many of them who just happen to be white Christians, should find a prepper-friendly church in their area as soon as possible once they've moved into the Redoubt. In particular, he desires that they should attend a reformed Calvinistic churches. Why? For the following reasons. He says, quote, In my experience in the Western United States, Reformed churches tend to have a very high percentage of families that are both preppers and homeschoolers. It is most noteworthy that when I put forth my American Redoubt plan, a key aspect was that it should be primarily geared toward fellow Christians, Messianic Jews, and conservative Jews, end quote. So let's look at Doug Wilson and the American Redoubt. Is Doug Wilson connected in any way to the American Redoubt movement? According to the site The Truth About Moscow ID, author Ulysses, that I've quoted already, believes that although Wilson isn't a full-on redoubter, he's nonetheless tied to the movement in a number of ways ideologically. Quote, Pastor Douglas Wilson of Christ Church Moscow agrees with redoubt politically, but he does not agree with redoubt practically. That is, he affirms with redoubt that the political system is on the verge of collapse, but he is not a survivalist. He wouldn't last a day in the wilderness, let alone a night. But he is an opportunist, and Moscow, Idaho, falls not far from the geographical center of the American Redoubt, which explains Doug Wilson's political endorsement of Republican Carl Berglund for the Idaho House of Representatives. Carl Berglund is the American Redoubt candidate. And Ulysses concludes by saying, This is a no-brainer. Doug Wilson is establishing his Redoubt street cred to recruit Redoubters to move to Moscow. Attrition has wiped out the Kirk, and he will shrivel without new followers. Mr. Wilson could care less about the movement except for what he can skim off it, such as warm bodies to occupy, occupy seats at the Logos Gymnasium on Sunday mornings. The influx of new Kirkers in arriving to Moscow this summer will be gun-toting survivalists looking for a safe haven from the coming apocalypse. And the sky is falling right into Doug Wilson's lap, end quote. I think one key to understanding the American Redoubt movement ideologically and theologically is that a great many of the Christian Reconstructionist talking points attract new residents. This is seen most specifically as filtered through the Gary North Institute of Christian Economics perspective. Now, Gary North was R.J. Rushdoony's son-in-law, and he advocated hard money, survivalism, small local government, distrust of federal government, etc., and then you tie in the Rush Dooney point of view, the post-millennialism, distrust of and ultimately removal of Christian children from so-called government schools or public schools, and Calvinist slash Reformed theonomists theologically, they all start to line up. 
And this is what Gribben argues in his book. By the 1990s, Christian Reconstruction as a political movement on the Christian right had decreased in its influence, but crucially, its dominionist ideas are still very much alive even today in the Christian right and in mainstream evangelicalism. We're seeing a lot of the Seven Mountains Mandate type stuff, which is a an offshoot or an iteration or a stream of Christian Reconstructionism and Dominion theology. Now, at the same time, a growing number of conservative evangelicals believed that a major collapse of American society was imminent given the increasing secularism pervading the culture. Thus, the American Redoubt idea appeals to them as a place of refuge and survival when society ultimately falls apart. And as I mentioned, Wilson's dad, James, moved to Idaho after leaving the Navy because he saw the appeal of taking over a town like Moscow for Christ. I mean, consider the following. Moscow, Idaho is smack in the middle of the American Redoubt region. Wilson is connected with Christian Reconstructionism, and we're going to look at this more later, and in particular, Gary North's version of it after he and Rush Dooney fell out. North's vision, as I mentioned, was for things like hard money, survivalism, small local government, etc., a model that a great many in the American Redoubt have adopted. A number of Rawls' talking points align with those of Wilson's, things like theonomy, Calvinism, Reformed theology, homeschooling, and other Christian Reconstructionist ideas. On the survivalblog.com, Rawls has a list of recommended churches that AR residents should attend. Christchurch in Moscow is on that list. Christchurch is the largest Reformed-slash-Calvinist church in the American Redoubt region. And finally, Wilson's affiliated with the Cross Politic podcast. I mentioned that before, the Fight, Laugh, Feast, or FLF network. Now, at the 2022 FLF conference in Knoxville, Tennessee, the speakers include Wilson, as I've mentioned, a number of nepotistic connections. Sponsors include, among many Wilson Christian ministry arms, Christian Reconstructionist Gary DeMar's American Vision organization, and another one called Armored Republic, which is a company out of Phoenix, Arizona, and they sell tactical body armor both to police forces and military. But critically, and of course controversially, they also sell their body armor to civilians. Now theirs is a Christian nationalist platform. It's based on this argument of so-called, you know, free men defending their liberties, rights, families, and property. And one could easily draw a connection between the survivalist, prepper types, and the American Redoubt stocking up on guns, ammo, body armor, things like that, and Wilson's sphere of influence, since companies like Armored Republic is a sponsor at his conferences. When we return from the break, we're going to take a look at some more of these issues surrounding Doug Wilson, his influence on Christian homeschooling, whether or not he is some form of Christian reconstructionist, or in his words, a general equity theonomist. If you don't know what that means, you're going to have to stay tuned for that coming up in just a few minutes. What I will say as we go forward into looking more into this issue of Doug Wilson we're going to be putting a lot of episodes out. I've got so much research that I've already done. The next episode that is going to drop is with Kate West, and she is a survivor of the sort of Doug Wilson, quiverful, stay-at-home daughters, classical schools, homeschooling, or I should say Christian homeschooling model that's got Doug Wilson's fingerprints all over it. And I came across her in an article that she wrote. I think it was a Religion Dispatches, one of those kind of journals, 
and I've reached out to her to hear her stories. So that's an absolutely fascinating kind of an inside look as to what it's like to grow up in the Doug Wilson inspired universe, the homeschooling, especially the stay at home daughters thing and some of the major key players in that movement. Then I've already started recording. We're going to do another long, long episode on the many scandals that have been attached to Doug Wilson. I wouldn't just say over the years, I'm going to say over the decades. It has literally been one scandal after the next, after the next, after the next. If you don't know the whole story of Doug Wilson and all the shady crap that he's been involved in and how it makes him appear going on into this question, is he as some sort of a cult leader or even a destructive cult leader? We're going to dive even more into that in the second episode after the one with Kate West drops. And then I've got another one coming out with a returning guest, David Johnson. And we're going to take a really deep dive into this issue of a Christian or so-called biblical defense of slavery. And this is something, of course, that also relates to Doug Wilson with his infamous 1996 book, Southern Slavery As It Was. So we're going to take a look at that. And then I've got one with Dr. Nick Geyer. And it turns out I've been mispronouncing his name all this time. I've been pronouncing it Nick Gear. But I just finished talking to him as I'm doing this recording now, and he is Doug Wilson's professor of philosophy at the University of Idaho, and he's been writing and debating with Doug Wilson for years. And so Dr. Geyer and I had a fantastic conversation, so that will also be coming out as well. So there's a lot of content coming out on Doug Wilson. I'm also going to do an episode on some of the influencers that Doug Wilson has in his orbit. These guys that are pushing his sort of biblical patriarchy into the manosphere. If you've never heard of that, I'll explain all that. So there's a ton of stuff coming down the pipeline all about Doug Wilson. And I'm trying to do my best to get the word out there and really warn people about some of the dangers associated With Doug Wilson, his toxic biblical patriarchy, the sort of cult-like environment that he's built up there in Moscow, Idaho. And in fact, one of the things that Dr. Geyer mentioned when we were just chatting now was that a lot of people in Christchurch today, they have no idea about all these controversies around Doug Wilson. They've never heard of his book, Southern Slavery, as it was. They don't know anything about it. They're just going because he's a good communicator. So right then and there, you can see there's an issue with the question, who exactly is Doug Wilson? And that is why I believe it's so important for me to do this kind of research and work to look at this question of whether or not Doug Wilson is just some sort of misunderstood pastor. He's trying his best to get his version of the gospel out there. Or is he in fact some sort, some form of destructive cult leader? We're now going to take a look at this issue of Doug Wilson and his influence on the Christian homeschooling, Christian school movement. Now, we've already mentioned that his classical schooling model, as well as Christian homeschooling and his curriculum, are two major ways in which Wilson's influence has spread so far and wide. It's like he's in the groundwater, as it were. We're going to take a look at this question, a little closer look at this in a minute, but let's just note that Wilson is very cagey. He's super careful not to admit that he's a Christian reconstructionist or for that matter, a dominionist. But it's important to note a couple of things. A, he cites Rush Dooney, who was the founder of Christian reconstructionism in various places. And he mentions him as an influence. B, he's a post-millennialist, just like Rush Dooney was. C, he's a reformed Calvinist. Rush Dooney was a staunch Calvinist. D, 
He teaches a form of theonomy, and we'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. It's known as general equity theonomy, and D has, over the decades since he came to power, as we've already talked about, he's attempted to enact a type of dominionist vision. But how exactly has he attempted to do this, and and how does it relate to this issue of Christian homeschooling and Christian schools and his influence there? Well, we can see how he's tried to take dominion in at least two ways. First, as seen in Christ Church's attempts to take over the town of Moscow, turning it into a so-called Christian city or Christian town. That's according to their own website. Second, as we've noted in the Daily Cost article, Newark points out just how extensive Wilson's reach is in the Christian school and homeschooling communities. He says, quote, Despite its location in a remote rural college town, Christ Church is not merely a fringe cult. Wilson is a major figure in the evangelical homeschooling and so-called Christian classical Christian school movements, having helped found the Association of Classical and Christian Schools, which accredits institutions similar to Wilson's. He also operates a publishing house, Logos Books, that provides curriculum materials for both homeschoolers and classical schools. He concludes its current expansion plans in Moscow include a new complex for Logos School built on 30 acres of land in the town's northwestern perimeter. A fundraising video reminds viewers that, now quoting from the video, much of what we are doing in education is exported to hundreds of classical Christian schools across the country and beyond, end quote. So just on the face of it, in my opinion anyway, as one who studied his teachings in depth, all of these efforts fits into Rush Dooney's vision of a so-called reconstructed society. In his vision, it was going to be generations of Christian children who had graduated either from Christian day schools or homeschooling environments who would eventually take dominion over America and ultimately the world. In other words, in Rush Dooney's view, it was a grassroots, bottom-up type of model that will take a very long time to accomplish. But as Rush Dooney saw it, the takeover would ultimately be inevitable. Operating from within a post-millennialist eschatology, Rush Dooney believed that the church had to establish Christ's kingdom on earth prior to his return. Thus, as a strategy of mobilization, the best way for the church to achieve dominion was through raising up all those generations of well-indoctrinated Christian children and eventually taking over society. In a 2021 Christianity Today article, Gillis Harp points out that, as I just mentioned, Wilson's agenda of promoting Christian schools and homeschooling, along with the associated philosophy of education underlying it, echoes Rush Dooney's earlier concepts of education. He notes that, quote, By the 1990s, Wilson had become a widely acknowledged authority on homeschooling, promoting a classical curriculum based loosely on Dorothy Sayers' previously neglected essay, The Lost Tools of Learning, 1947. Moreover, he says, Wilson helped both found a seminary and a small residential liberal arts college, ambitiously christened New St. Andrews, in Moscow. Pacific Northwest theonomists separated themselves from the public school system as part of their strategy to transform society at large. Before we can enlist in the culture war, Wilson commented, 
We have to have a culture, and that culture must be Christian, end quote. That Wilson has a major reach into homeschooling families is certainly a concern in and of itself, as he spreads both neo-Confederate ideas as well as elements of a Christian Reconstructionist dominion type of theology, in addition to his highly controversial views on biblical patriarchy. But on a much more disturbing level, there have been a number of stories coming out of this deeply patriarchal system about sexual abuse and other forms of religious trauma syndrome caused by it. Now I mentioned we're going to have Kate West. She's an upcoming guest. She wrote a May 2022 article in Religion Dispatches entitled, Sexual Abuse is Inevitable in Christian Patriarchy. Just take a look at Doug Wilson's Christchurch and its new documentary, Eve in Exile, The Restoration of Femininity. We're going to touch more on this in detail in another episode, but she talks about the horrific case of Natalie Greenfield, who at just 14 years old was sexually abused by a Greyfriars Hall student, one Jamin or Jamin White. Not only did the abuse happen due to the circumstances around White and Greenfield, which I'll talk about later in another episode, but both Wilson and the church seriously mishandled the entire incident. She comments that, quote, Christian patriarchy is often presented by its proponent as a viewpoint that protects women. In his book, Her Hand in Marriage, Wilson writes, now quoting Doug Wilson, he says, women inescapably need godly masculine protection against ungodly masculine harassment. Women who refuse protection from their fathers and husbands must seek it from the police. But women who genuinely insist on no masculine protection are really women who tacitly agree on the propriety of rape. And she goes on to say, not only are Wilson's ideas about rape extremely problematic, but he has it exactly backwards. An environment in which women have no power and no voice is an environment in which they're more vulnerable to abuse, not less, end quote. In other words, as the recent bombshell reporting about the hundreds of clergy sexual abuse cases within the Southern Baptist denomination made it abundantly clear, patriarchal ideology, such as the so-called complementarian view of men and women, continues to contribute to systemic church abuse. And as Kate West points out, quote, anyone invested in creating safe religious communities should be concerned that proponents of complementarianism and patriarchy are actively working to spread this ideology, end quote. And as I say, we're going to take a look at that a bit more when we look at the second episode about the scandals attached to Doug Wilson and Christ Church. Now let's take a look at this issue of Doug Wilson. Is he, in fact, a Christian Reconstructionist? Now going along with what I just mentioned about his Wilson and his connections to Christian Reconstructionism, we've got to take a closer look at this issue in more detail. Here's the question. Is Doug Wilson a card-carrying Christian Reconstructionist ascribing to all of the element, elements that R.J. Rushdoony, Gary North, and other early Reconstructionists laid out for American society? The question is, as we say, is Doug Wilson a Christian Reconstructionist? What I'm about to play for you now is a clip from the Canon Press YouTube channel in which someone interviews Doug Wilson on the question, are you a theonomist? And it's really revealing 
to note what Doug Wilson's explanations are. I'm going to play you about the first half of the clip. I'll make some comments, and then I'm going to come back and play the second half of the clip where the interviewer asked Doug Wilson about his ties specifically to Christian Reconstructionism and note how he talks about the concept of what he calls general equity theonomy. Make note of that as we go into this clip. Are you a theonomist? If so, are you a Christian Reconstructionist? If not, why not? Uh, they all died out in the 80s. <laughs> okay, that's a good alibi. <laughs> okay, so uh, I've been asked the question enough that my my joking response is, are you uh, to are you a theonomist? I would say, oh oh no, I hate God's law. <laughs> all theonomist means uh, theos is God and nomos is law. So every Christian is a theonomist in some sense. So every Christian believes that human beings ought to do what God requires them to do. Sure. So the only question after that is, what did you tell us to do? So then you're de- now you're dealing with hermeneutics. So I want to, and I, this is not just being coy or cute. I want to say that every obedient Christian or every Christian who who insists that God needs to be obeyed, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, uh, is a theonomist in principle. Okay. So the question after that is, what did this sovereign God tell us to do? Mm-hmm. And then that brings in a host of questions about the relationship of Old Testament law to New Testament law. What did the coming of Christ do um, in the fulfillment of the law? Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do we understand all those things? And my, my understanding of that is um, f- fairly classically, classically reformed, and I would describe myself as a Westminster theonomist. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, so I'm, I affirm the continuing validity and authority of God's law as expressed in the Old Testament in the time of the New Covenant. Okay. According to certain careful stipulations, the Western, the Westminster Confession says that God's law in the Old Testament was moral, ceremonial, and judicial. Okay, the moral law continues on: you shall not murder, you shall not murder. Um, uh, ceremonial is fulfilled in Christ. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats anymore because Christ is the sacrifice. The judicial law, and this is very interesting, the judicial law. The Westminster Confession says that the laws that governed Israel in the time of that commonwealth no, are no longer ceased with the cessation of that commonwealth. So once Israel went away, the laws of Israel went away. Okay. Except the Westminster Confession says, as the judicial, as the general equity thereof may require. Okay. okay. So I'm a general equity theonomist. Okay. Okay. So I believe that the moral law continues down to the present, and uh, and I would I'd want to distinguish sins and crimes. So if the Bible says that something is sinful and ought to be a crime, like murder or rape, right. I don't have any problem uh, saying that we ought to have laws against rape under the new covenant in the time of the new covenant, mm-hmm. and I would cite an Old Testament passage to justify that. Sure. If um, and I would also have no problem saying, no, we're not supposed to sacrifice bulls and goats. We're not supposed to have temples. We're not supposed to go back because Jesus Christ died. 
All right, let's just break in here. Notice what I was saying earlier. I hope you picked up on some of the highlights. The question was, are you a theonomist? And Doug Wilson went down the road of saying, I'm a classically sort of informed Westminster uh, kind of guy on this topic. The question was, when they were doing this back in the Reformation days, the Reformers were struggling with the question, what's the applicability of the Old Testament law for believers in their time? And that's where they came up with that threefold division of moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. And their argument is that the civil and the ceremonial laws may have gone away, but the moral law, as he talks about, that's the general equity element of the law. In other words, the principles are still binding on the believer today, even though the specific law and the example he gives in his explanation is the Old Testament law that in ancient Israel, you had to have a parapet or a handrail around your first or second floor uh, house, the top of your flat roof. And if someone fell off that, you were criminally liable. And his argument is that law is no longer binding today. However, the principle behind it, which is all about safeguarding human life and the sanctity of life and all the rest of it, that would apply. And he would then say, now we can take that principle and apply it into modern day settings. Now I'm going to play for you the second part of this episode, this interview rather, where the question comes up specifically. He's asked, what about this issue of Christian reconstructionism? And note Doug Wilson's explanation for why he's kind of a Christian Reconstructionist, but not a card-carrying one like Rush Dooney, Gary North, and some of the earlier ones. So that that was your explanation of theonomy. What what about Christian Reconstruction? So Christian Reconstruction is taking all of that high high flying theory and applying it to these United States. Okay. All right. So let's uh, reconstruct the republic. Let's. Um, uh, Go return to a biblical foundation okay. for govern, governance, as opposed to our current secular secularism. And I'm entirely in favor of abandoning secularism. I believe that secularism is a failed project, and I believe that Christians need to summon uh, the nation back to righteousness. Okay. And righteousness has to be defined by the Bible. So I am. I, I suppose it would be fair to say that I am a certain kind of Christian Reconstructionist in that I want the laws to be reconstructed in accordance with biblical values. I'm not a secularist, but I'm not a... Uh, so in one sense, yes. In another sense, were you a card-carrying member of the Christian Reconstructionists of the 1980s, Greg Bonson, Gary North, Rush Dooney, and so forth? Uh, no, I wasn't... A, wasn't a card-carrying member of that movement. Okay. Are you trying to resurrect that movement? Uh, well, I I would like a kinder, gentler Reconstructionism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So one of the problems with Reconstructionism uh, back then was uh, they, had, they had a terrible time getting along with, e- with each other. Okay. Which, ironically, is uh, a violation of, of theonomy. The, God's law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and I, I believe that we have to, the, basically, I'll put it this way. I think Christians need to reconstruct the church before we reconstruct the republic. Okay. Okay. Do you think that was upside down in that movement? I think it was upside down in certain parts of that movement. Yeah, I think it was a significant deficiency. Um, because I believe that we have to model 
what n the new humanity looks like in Christ in churches and show that we have the wisdom and the biblical knowledge to know how to get along mm -hmm. and we have to live it out and as we as we model that as we showcase it and we establish it in various townships and communities and 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 we're doing this people are going to say hey look at that mm -hmm. I, I think there's going to be a, a certain attractiveness to it i don't think we should run for congress and uh, try to impose this from the top okay so how does um how do you get the godly laws voted in then if it's not imposed from the top well i, I do think that there's another element to this i it's not that i think that imposition from the top is irrelevant mm -hmm. i think that's an important piece but you don't want a reformation like josiah had where it's all from the top and then he gets killed in a battle, and, and then Israel's back to the way they were um, right away. But neither do you want uh, the people, um, like sheep without a shepherd, longing for righteousness, and no one, to, no one is willing to lead them. So in your, in your vision, then, it would be preachers first, followed by Christian preachers first, followed by godly politicians? Yeah, preachers and congregations, followed by politicians and populations okay okay we don't want to spend way too much time on this we could get really really seriously down into the weeds here we're giving doug wilson a chance though to explain himself in his own words he's asked the question are you a card carrying christian reconstructionist essentially in the vein of rush dooney gary north greg bonson these essentially are describing first generation rush dooney and then second Guys like Gary North, Greg Bonson, and many others who took up Rush Dooney's ideas, modified them somewhat, and then if you know your history, as it comes to the early history of the origins of the Christian right, you're going to find out that what they did was they picked up on a lot of Rush Dooney's ideas, they jettisoned some of the more extreme elements of that, and that's what led into a lot of the early formation, the scaffolding, I guess you could say, the theological, the biblical scaffolding of the early movement in the 70s and 80s on the Christian right as they went really hardcore into American politics, the political sector. And so that's kind of how it happened. A lot of them wouldn't admit that they had read Rush Dooney or studied his works. So we see here an example of Doug Wilson. By the time he comes along, he's marrying Christian nationalism. You notice there was an allusion to that. He talked about we need to return to sort of a godly nation status. When the question then comes, how do you do that? It's not, in his view, imposed from the top down. He's not necessarily saying we've got to elect godly candidates in air quotes and have them pass laws. But he says it's a grassroots movement, which is really actually more in accordance with Rush Dooney's ideas, that was where the homeschooling and Christian day school aspect of it came in for Rush Dooney. He talked about raising up generations and generations and generations of children who would then go on to influence their world and turn it into a Christian nation and thereby establish some form of theonomy. So what Wilson has done, as Gribben talks about, he sands off some of the rough, more objectionable edges. As he says in the interview, it's all about a kinder, gentler reconstructionism now. And he says, we're doing that. And the irony, of course, as we've been mentioning throughout this episode, is that Wilson says it's going to be attractive if we just model these things in our community. And he alludes to Moscow. He says, we're doing that now. And what he means is 
We, Christchurch, we're doing that very thing in the town of Moscow. We have been doing it since I took over in 1977. And that's the real impetus behind, I think, his drive to establish such a sprawling empire and be so influential, not just in the Christian homeschooling and day schooling movements, but just generally, as we've been describing, throughout mainstream evangelicalism. It's like Doug Wilson's everywhere. He's being platformed, as I mentioned before, by guys like John Piper and in other places. He's on podcasts, cross politics, he's on YouTube channels, he's being interviewed all the time. He does his own stuff. He's getting, you know, all kinds of content out there and he's pushing an agenda. And of course, this this is what I think the irony of the whole thing is, is that it isn't attractive, certainly not to the outside world. Why are we ringing alarm bells that Doug Wilson is potentially a cult leader? There's all these broken victims in his wake and in Christchurch wake, and we're going to talk about that in the second episode. That ain't attractive. That's not attractive to me. That's not attractive to a lot of people. I am not personally attracted by that sort of model. In fact, I'm repulsed by it, and I'm frankly kind of afraid of it and that's why I'm doing all this work to warn people about what Doug Wilson is doing and how much of a malign influence his whole biblical patriarchy, his toxic Christian patriarchy model actually is. And really the story of how Doug Wilson came to be a Christian reconstructionist or as he says a kinder, gentler version that's picked up by Crawford Gribben. I mentioned him before. He's a professor at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. He's the author of the book Survival and Resistance, Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest. And he talks about what I mentioned before, how Rush Dooney's Christian Reconstruction ideas influenced a lot of the burgeoning Christian right back in the 70s and 80s. But he talks about that on this call. He talks about by the 1990s, a lot of the Reconstructionist ideas had fallen out of favor in the Christian right, if only in the sense that they were too extreme, such as the stoning of gays, stoning of incorrigible teens, or women who were found not to be virgins on their wedding night, and so forth. They had a very literalistic application of the Old Testament laws in civil society. In addition, there were some other problems, too, that started coming out, such as Rush Dooney's Holocaust denial, or at least he downplayed the severity of the Holocaust in his massive tome. It's over a thousand pages, 1973's Institutes of Biblical Law. And that, of course, only added to the controversy. And ironically, modern Holocaust deniers, they're linked to Rush Dooney's work. Now, that's pretty troubling, isn't it? It's funny because books like Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel, A Handmaid's Tale, were actually written specifically to refute Rush Dooney's vision of what a modern theocratic society could or should look like and how those views were being disseminated at the time throughout the Christian right. Rush Dooney also had some troubling, troubling views laying out a so-called biblical defense of slavery, which, of course, as I mentioned before, Wilson and Wilkins later picked up in their book, 1996, Southern Slavery as it was. We're going to devote perhaps a complete episode to that book. So in a religion news article I mentioned before, Gribben lays out the backstory of Rush Dooney's Christian Reconstructionism and how Wilson came to espouse various elements of his views. He says, quote, One of Wilson's most important influences is the late R.J. Rush Dooney, an Armenian-American Presbyterian theologian who was driven by protecting Protestants in the U.S. from suffering the kind of genocide from which his parents escaped. Now, I'm just going to jump out of this. What's he talking about? He's talking about in World War One in Armenia. That's where Rush Dooney's parents came from. Uh, million, uh, several million, maybe 1.5 or more million Armenians, uh, Christians, 
were basically slaughtered, a genocide by the Turks as part of the Ottoman Empire at that time. So they came in on the side of Germany and this was a horrific incident and his parents actually escaped that and Rush Dooney was actually born in the United States in 1916, so right in the middle of World War I. So growing up then when they moved to Southern California, he grew up hearing stories uh, he lived in an Armenian community there in, in in Southern California, and Rush Dooney heard all these stories about horrific escapes and, of course, people being killed and murdered by the Turks. So this was kind of one of his major drivers going forward. He sort of took that model and said, that's not going to happen in the United States. So then Griven, let's pick him back up. He says, quote, frustrated by the otherworldliness of many American Christian denominations whose adherents he feared preached more about heaven than earth, and their complacency in what he perceived to be a hostile liberal culture, Rush Duty set about developing biblical principles for how society should be organized. And Gribben explains, he says, the Ten Commandments, in his, in his view, the Ten Commandments were no longer to be considered as an artifact in the history of morality, Rush Duny argued. Instead, they should be understood as setting out the core principles for the running of the modern state. Thou shalt not steal ruled out the possibility of inflation, which Rush Dooney argued devalued monetary assets and was therefore a form of theft, and thou shalt have no other gods besides me, ruled out any possibility of religious pluralism. And Griffith goes on to say, Rush Dooney promoted these ideals in titles such as 1973's Institutes of Biblical Law, a 1,000-page exposition of the Ten Commandments that argued for both the abolition of the prison system and a massive extension of capital punishment. Christians would be secure in American society only when it was shaped by their religious values, he argued, but the Christian America that he anticipated would not be secured through revolution or any form of top-down political change, only by the transformation of individual lives, families, towns, and states. He concludes, he says, this strategy of promoting beliefs at the local level explains why Christian Reconstructionists, led by, like those led by Wilson, prefer to focus energies in small towns. The Reconstructionists in Moscow believe that they can achieve much more significant cultural impact if they can secure significant demographic change, either by the conversion of existing inhabitants or by encouraging others to move to the area, end quote. And that's exactly what Wilson said in that YouTube clip, isn't it? It was not a top-down thing that he believed in, just like actually Rush Dooney believed it was the transformation of individual lives. He just says that it should start with a church, and Rush Dooney had a real focus on the family. That was his most important sphere of the three, the government, the church, and the family. Rush Dooney, I think, would say that the family was the most important of all the three spheres to protect. On that Canon Calls podcast I mentioned just a minute ago, Gribben comments on the Institutes of Biblical Law that while it was hailed at the time of its release in 1973, quote, it and distillations of it seem to have made quite an impact on policy organizations, lobbying organizations. Julie Ingersoll, who of course is the author of a book on Christian Reconstructionism, and I've actually had her on this podcast, Gribben says, writes with some recollections in that book of her own time as a kind of exponent of Christian Reconstruction, visiting lobbying organizations in Washington and seeing Christian Reconstruction books on their shelves, end quote. Gribben goes on to state in the podcast that, quote, these ideas began to circulate, so they circulated in hardcore fashion in publications by R.J. Rushdooney, 
Gary North, who was his son-in-law, Gary DeMar, and others, but they also circulated in kind of a softer, cuddlier, fuzzier fashion in the works of people like Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is often thought of as, you know, kind of an evangelical cold warrior, but he's taking a lot of his ideas from Rush Dooney, end quote, maybe even to the point where Schaeffer was, as his biographer Barry Hankins argues, actually indebted, both in terms of argument and polemic, to Rush Dooney. And I'm just going to interject here. I've had Frank Schaefer on the podcast several times, and we talked about this. Was his father, Francis Schaefer, indebted to Rush Dooney? Now, Frank Schaefer argues that Francis, his father, wasn't. But I think there's a lot of stuff in Francis Schaefer's writing that you can actually trace to Rush Dooney. He may not necessarily name Rush Dooney or cite him as a reference, but that's an interesting point that Gribben makes. So Gribben lays out the history of Christian Reconstructionism, quote, By the 1990s, that movement had pretty much fallen apart. It's been deeply divided by animosities between leading individuals within the movement. And Doug Wilson, of course, referenced this in that YouTube clip, didn't he? And Gribben goes on to say, And so, most of the people who wrote about in the 1990s, apart from wild conspiracy theorists, most of the people who wrote about it saw it as functionally dead. It had been a disturbing movement, end quote. Apart from feeding into the early Christian right as a cultural presence, then, what Gribben has argued, and we hear Doug Wilson say this too, as a movement, it had largely died out. This is where Doug Wilson's story, though, begins to intertwine with the Christian Reconstructionist movement, but not really in a hardcore way, as he talked about on the YouTube clip. On the one hand, the in initial Reconstructionist vision was for more of a top-down establishment of theonomic political power. And we're talking about, this is what Gary North and some of the others picked up on, not necessarily Rush Dooney. But that still resonates today among many in the Christian right. You know their argument, when the presidency will then be able to pass righteous laws to overturn abortion and gay marriage, will make America a Christian nation again, that type of logic. And we've seen that with things like Roe versus Wade, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and so forth, embracing Christian nationalism. And that's the hardcore side of this dominionist idea. Now, this thinking was very clearly seen during the Trump campaign in 2015, the run-up to the election, the subsequent 81% white evangelical vote for him, and then basically all during his presidency. A great many evangelicals not only voted for him because of this logic, but they rejoiced during his time as president because, quote-unquote, God's chosen man, God's Cyrus figure, or whatever you want to call him, he was finally in the White House, and it would therefore translate directly into policies and laws that not only favored Christians and churches, it would result in the return to America's fabled Christian nation status once again. And in a way, they have won by backing Trump after he appointed the last three conservative judges to the Supreme Court. They succeeded, didn't they, in overturning Roe versus Wade. And as Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead point out in their excellent book, Taking America Back for God, Christian nationalism was the dominant and most significant driver in evangelicals voting for Trump in 2016, and they have shown in further research that it was still the significant factor for evangelicals voting for him again in 2020. And if you want to hear those episodes, I've had both Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead on the podcast talking about their book, Taking America Back for God. 
Now, it must be noted as a caveat, however, that although a great many of Rushduni's ideas translated into the Christian right's desire for political power, as I've mentioned, at the core of his argument is the notion that God's design for dominion starts with the sphere of the family and then translates into the church. In Rushduni's view, the government has no right to interfere in the spheres of either the church or the family. Now, Rushduni argued that ever since the Renaissance, at least, in the West, the church's dominant role in society has been overtaken by that of the government, both in terms of legislation and simply just the ordering of civil society along more secular lines. The government, Rushduni argued, has essentially set itself up as God now and seeks to meet all of society's needs in the way the church used to. This includes, most importantly, in the realm of education, which Rushduni argued was primarily essentially a religious activity. Public schools, or government schools as he called them, are nothing more than indoctrination factories, temples to the official state religion of secular humanism. Teachers, in his view, served as the new priesthood of this religion, and they seek to indoctrinate generations of children and lead them away from God and religion, teaching them the exact opposite message to what they hear both in the church and in the godly home. And this is basically the argument of his book, Intellectual Schizophrenia, which I think came out in the early 1960s. So he was talking about this stuff decades ago. And in his view, intellectual schizophrenia was this exact sort of bifurcation. Kids hearing about God and Jesus and the Bible at home and in church, then they go off to their government school and they hear the exact opposite. And eventually you have this intellectual schizophrenia. And so what he talked about in Rush Dooney's view, this whole system is what he termed statism meaning that the state has usurped both God and the church's rightful place in society. Now, how was this done? Well, in his view, by overtaking the sphere of the church and ultimately encroaching or perhaps violating on the boundary of the family sphere too. This view in part helps to explain why he was such a passionate defender of both Christian day schools and ultimately homeschooling. Without his Herculean efforts in the 1970s, in the 1980s, First of all, to help encourage pastors to found Christian day schools, and then he served as an expert court witness in multiple states advocating for the rights of Christian homeschooling parents. Because, of course, this is in the nascent early start of the movement. Homeschooling was technically illegal, and these parents had to go to court to win the right to homeschool their kids, and Rush Dooney helped them to do that. So if he hadn't have done that, both Christian day schools and homeschools would not exist as we know them today, certainly not in America. He passionately believed and proclaimed widely to Christian parents and pastors that their children should be pulled out of government schools and instead enrolled in Christian day schools, or even better, homeschool. Rush Dooney went so far to, as to say that any Christian parent knowingly enrolling their child in a government school was essentially sacrificing them to Moloch, who's Moloch? He's an ancient pagan deity. He's a religion from the pages of the Old Testament, whereby people would throw their babies into the fire, sacrificing them to Moloch. And that was his metaphor for what Christian parents were doing if they send their kids to a government school. Now, he operated from within, just like Doug Wilson, a post-millennialist eschatology where Christ returns after the church sets up a godly kingdom on earth. Now, this Reconstructionist vision, it was a long-term one. It advocates the idea that it's going to take generations of Christian families raising godly children 
inculcated with a so-called biblical worldview ultimately to achieve dominion over society. Then, and only then, would Christ return. But only after, as I said, his kingdom has already been established on earth by Christians. Now, incidentally, as we're going to see, and we've kind of already touched on this earlier on, a great many of these ideas find their expression in Wilson's work and that of the numerous authors, pastors, and influencers in his orbit. Another thing I want to mention, too, is that Rush Dooney was also deeply patriarchal in his theology. He viewed God's design for the marriage and family as ordaining that the man was very much the head of the house, the head of the marriage, and that was the strategy or mobilization strategy, I should say, for taking dominion. It starts with the family. It starts with the man, the head of the house. In Rush Dooney's view, wives were to submit to their husbands and the children should obey their parents as the Old Testament law commands and Paul later reiterates in several of his epistles. And of course, Doug Wilson would 100% agree pretty much with everything that Rush Dooney talks about when it comes to biblical patriarchy. But enough about Rush Dooney. Like I said, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here. Let's go back to the Doug Wilson story. As compared then to Rush Dooney and the early generation of more hardcore Reconstructionists, or hard dominion as Fred Clarkson would call them, Wilson and the new breed of Reconstructionists are less political. As he talked about in the YouTube clip, he advocates a bottom-up, a grassroots idea whereby men take dominion over their marriage, over their families, in smaller communities, and ultimately take over towns and cities like Moscow, winning it for Christ. However, it must be noted that although it is more grassroots, ultimately this dominionist strategy inevitably means that more and more Christians will get involved in local businesses, schools, and city and state politics, all with a view to so-called Christianize those various institution and then or institutions, and possibly, in my view, I think, they take a page from the Seven Mountains Mandate Dominion Theology Strategy Playbook. We're going to be uh, taking dominion over business and arts and media and education, and that's basically what they're doing in Moscow. Crawford Gribben, as I mentioned before, on that Canon Calls podcast, he picks up that historical narrative regarding the mainstream popularity of how the Christian Reconstructionist movement ended. In his words, he's looking at the ways, quote, in which the migration movement into the Pacific Northwest, and especially into North Idaho, was revivifying some of those these ideas, but not doing so in a sort of scholastic, wonky kind of culture, but actually in a culture that's more interested in community, in culture, in the arts, and I think also critically interested in a community that's centered upon congregational life. And he goes on, he says, and then the story picks up in the 1990s and shows how in towns like Moscow, Idaho, and some other towns as well, these ideas are really given a second lease of life. So I argue the basic argument of the book is that Christian Reconstruction isn't dead. It's been renewed. It's been simplified. A lot of the rough edges have been removed. A lot of the really controversial claims of the first generation have either been downplayed or denied. And that, as Doug Wilson put it in an interview I did with him, what's been so successful now in North Idaho is not so much Christian Reconstruction 2.0, but Christian Reconstructionism 0.5, end quote. Gribben's notion that men like Wilson deny their status as Reconstructionists, it does seem to be borne out, as we heard in that YouTube clip. For example, at the time of his infamous 2004 conference, defending his really racist book, Southern Slavery as it was, which of course was co-written by Stephen Wilkins, 
Doug Wilson was directly asked, he was confronted by a reporter, are you in fact a Christian reconstructionist? Wilson flatly denied it at the time, and he stated, furthermore, that the movement itself was dead. However, I found this little short blog post, it's actually promoting one of Rush Dooney's books on pornography. Doug Wilson says, quote, back in the 80s, I read through a small hill of Rush Dooney's books, profiting greatly from many of them, end quote. In that Vice article I mentioned earlier, Sarah Stankerb notes that Wilson's dominionist vision to take over Moscow can, in fact, be traced back to his father's agenda, as we, of course, noted earlier. She states that, quote, much of Doug Wilson's work is arguably the continuation of that of his father, Jim Wilson. In 1971, Jim Wilson moved to the Moscow, Idaho area to start a Christian bookstore after retiring from the Navy. The Elder Wilson's 1964 book, Principles of War, a handbook on strategic evangelism, is a how-to for spiritual takeover of individuals, cities, and nations. Doug Wilson has described Moscow as a city right-sized for spiritual conquest. If all continues according to plan, she says, Mother Kirk's dominion over Moscow will deepen as its influence spreads, end quote. According to Christchurch, or I should say Kirk's website, it actually spells out Wilson's dominionist agenda. It's right there on their site about, or it's our mission. They say, quote, our desire is to make Moscow a Christian town through genuine cultural engagement that provides Christian leadership in the arts, in business, in education, in politics, and in literature. And as I said before, as I read that, this echoes the Seven Mountain Mandate, ideas of Christians taking dominion over multiple spheres of society. And I found there's a website, an archived sermon of Doug Wilson from years ago, and he talks about his dad's book. And he basically agrees with everything Sarah Stankerb and Nick Gear said, that that's the idea, that's the real driving force, why his father moved to Pullman, Washington, and why he talks about the idea of taking over not just one town, but two towns and ultimately two states for Christ. In that Southern Poverty Law Center article that I talked about at the top of the show, written by Mark Potok, he pushes back on Doug Wilson's denials of being a Reconstructionist. He argues he was actually being quite disingenuous. Potok states, quote, But while Wilson may have slight differences with one or another Reconstructionist, it is false that the movement is dead and not true that Wilson is no part of it. In fact, he says, Wilson's theology is in most ways indistinguishable from basic tenets of reconstruction and going back to the 1990s he and both he and co-religionist stephen wilkins have been tightly linked to america's leading reconstructionist end quote in making the connections between wilson and reconstructionism potok lays out his case in the early 1990s wilkins started hosting annual confederate heritage conferences in monroe louisiana not many years later Doug Wilson was a regular speaker at those conferences. Also featured at those conferences was a number of leading Reconstructionists. George Grant, who also spoke at the Wilson-Wilkins event in Idaho in 2004, Larry Pratt, Joseph Moorcraft III, and Howard Phillips of the U.S. Taxpayers Party, later reconstituted as the Constitution Party in 2000. Both of those parties were shot through with Reconstructionist notions. Moreover, Doug Wilson's journal, Credenda Agenda, which we haven't even touched on so far, that similarly began hosting so-called history conferences in the mid-1990s, 
featuring, again, leading Reconstructionists such as Wilkins and Grant. Then, in 1996, as we've said before, Wilson and Wilkins released Southern Slavery as it was, which itself echoed many of Rush Dooney's earlier arguments and talking points defending so-called biblical slavery and the theological war thesis. And we haven't talked about that yet, but this is something I get into with David Johnson. Wilson's journal, as I mentioned, Credenda Agenda, is also linked to J. Grimstad's Coalition on Revival, C.O.R., which, in addition to promoting a dominionist vision for America, has Reconstructionist signatories, such as R.J. Rushduni, Gary North, David Chilton, Moorcraft, and Gary DeMar. The C.O.R. site still contains links to Credenda Agenda, inaugurated as a Christchurch quote-unquote ministry in 1988, as well as a number of Reconstructionist sites. And this is something that Dr. Andre Gagne and I spoke about in a recent episode, the importance of the Coalition on Revival. What Jay Grimstead was able to do was kind of sand off some of the more objectionable elements of Rush Dooney's Christian Reconstructionism, create these so-called worldview papers, and a lot of just leading evangelicals signed on to the project, not necessarily knowing what they were buying into. Now, in September of 2020, Doug Wilson's Christchurch held a protest against local COVID-19 mask mandates in downtown Moscow, Idaho. Gillis Harp, in that Christianity Today article, commented that the rally was promoted and led, quote, by Douglas Wilson, pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, a 900-member congregation with historical connections to Christian Reconstructionism, also known as Theonomy, a movement that hopes to see earthly society governed by biblical law, end quote, as I've already mentioned in his book, Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, or the Pacific Northwest, Crawford Gribben paints the picture of how theonomists like Wilson have distanced themselves from historic Christian Reconstructionism, preferring to separate instead from society and focusing on strategies of survivalism, re- resistance to government, and reconstruction of the church, as Wilson talked about in the YouTube clip. However, according to Gribben, these movements are much less marginal today than many had previously assumed. All guys like Wilson have done are, as I mentioned, they just have sanded off some of the rough edges of some of the more objectionable elements of Christian Reconstructionism. In his article, Harp comments that, quote, For these theonomists, present-day survivalism is closely linked to a future Reconstructionism of a, or a future reconstruction of a godly society and Christianity's earthly triumph. Theonomy is a diverse theological movement arising within a, re- a conservative reformed milieu. Its central ideas were first articulated by Russus John Rushduni, a California-based Presbyterian pastor and the son of Armenian immigrants. Gary North, Rushduni's estranged son-in-law, is one of many to carry its banner forward into the 21st century. Although theonomy first gained notoriety through its bold application of Mosaic law to the existing political order, more recent adherents have often sanded down its sharp edges, end quote. Thus, the disavowal of some of the Reconstructionist more harsh elements has allowed theonomists like Wilson to go more mainstream and thus to be accepted in wider evangelical circles. As I mentioned earlier, Wilson and his cohorts, for example, share a post-millennial eschatology with Rushduni. Rushduni's view of Christianity fighting against the forces of secular humanism, allied with an unalloyed triumphalism of Christ's return, appealed to a great number of evangelicals disheartened by the church's seeming loss of prominence 
in American society in the turbulent 1960s and 70s. Harp goes on to state that, quote, Douglas Wilson's evolving theology was shaped by Rush Dooney's post-millennial vision, although he has subtly distanced himself from the more extreme aspects of Rush Dooney's application of ancient Israel's legal code. Because of years of hard work by Wilson and his followers, Gribben argues, now quoting Gribben, Moscow may now be America's most post-millennial town, with two large, thriving Reconstructionist congregations and members who play important roles in the town's social and economic life, end quote. Therefore, Wilson's attempts to take over the town of Moscow and Christianize it seems to follow in Rushduni's libertarian line of thinking when it comes to the government being run by Christian. Wilson has also distanced himself from some of the more objectionable elements of Rushduni's notions of applying Old Testament law to civil society. But what Wilson has embraced is things like Rushduni's distrustful views of government, government schools or public schools, the value of Christian education and homeschooling, the patriarchy element, as well as elements of theonomy and that post-millennial eschatology. All right, let's conclude. We're finally getting to the end of this episode. Now, I know this has been a very long, a very in-depth look at Doug Wilson, the man, and some of his theological influences. I think, though, it's worth taking some time. It's definitely worth taking the time to take such a deep dive into his backstory. I've realized that although at the top of the show I mentioned we would conclude by looking at the question, is Doug Wilson a cult leader? I can now see that to ask that question now is actually, it's preemptive. We need more information, which is why we're going to devote at least two more episodes to this question. We need to look secondly at the many scandals that have been attached to him over the years, and perhaps more importantly, the ways in which they have been handled by him and his Christ church, including some cover-ups and misinformation campaigns, to say the least. In the meantime, the next episode that's going to drop, as I mentioned, is going to feature a discussion with Kate West. She, I've referenced her in this episode already regarding that Religion Dispatches article about how, as she argues, sexual abuse is inevitable in biblical patriarchy, church, and educational environments. Now, she grew up in a Doug Wilson-inspired, deeply Christian patriarchal, stay-at-home daughters type of home. She's got an incredible story to tell. The third and final episode will take a look at just how much of an influencer Doug Wilson has been and currently is in the new generation of, what do you call them, dude bros, beard bros. Everyone seems to sport these massive beards now. This is the thing in this patriarchy movement. They are deeply patriarchal pastors and Christian influencers. They're intent on spreading Wilson's message far and wide through things like conferences, podcasts, videos, social media platforms. And we're going to conclude, at least if not more episodes coming, I don't know, but we're going to conclude by doing that episode with David Johnson. We're going to talk about Wilson and his controversial views about defending or justifying so-called biblical slavery. And if there's enough interest, I've got loads of information. I've already researched on Wilson and Wilkins' book, Southern Slavery, as it was, and I mentioned that theological war thesis. We could take a deep dive into that. We could always devote a bonus episode to that if people are interested. But I think it's worth saying at the end, going through this, spending a few hours One thing, one or two things come out clearly. We can already say, is Doug Wilson a cult leader? We've talked about the use of nepotism. We've talked about the shunning on the back end. If you leave the church, if you speak out, if you question anything, 
you could find yourself iced out. And those are two things that are absolutely cult tactics. And one of the things I was reminded of the other day, I read a quote by Rick Allen Ross. He's a cult expert, cult deprogrammer. I've actually had him on the show years ago. And his definition of a destructive cult might surprise you. And I talked about that at the top of the show. It's not that the people in Moscow are stockpiling weapons unless they're part of the American Redoubt, in which case you absolutely could have some. And I'm sure you do have some in his church that are American Redoubters. You know, they're not building bombs. They're not going to blow up federal buildings. They're not going to commit mass suicide. It's not that kind of a destructive cult. Rick Allen Ross's definition of a destructive cult, if I can remember it right, is something about a cult leader who has no accountability, someone who can do whatever he or she wants without any accountability, that's when you get into very dangerous situations. And the destructive part of it is not about killing people necessarily, blowing up things and releasing sarin gas on the subway like the Om Shinrikyo cults, not like that. It's more destructive in the sense that it damages and destroys people's lives. And that's the issue. The things like the sexual abuse, the icing out, especially if you live in Moscow, for example, and you get cut out, suddenly you can't, your business is gone. You, you All your, your livelihood is taken away because people stop coming to your place of work. You might run a business as part of this dominionist vision of Doug Wilson's taking over the town and, and everyone's been told to stay away and you've lost your revenue. You know, things like that. That's destructive. That's damaging. Things like religious trauma syndrome. We're going to talk about in the next, the scandal episode about two very high profile cases. And I already mentioned one about that Jamin White. We're going to talk about Steven Sittler. And out of those two situations came some absolutely incredible damage to a load of people in that orbit. And Doug Wilson was behind the whole thing. So that is, in my view, fits the definition of a destructive cult. So I think we can already start to say that now. And we will come back to that question again in more detail later on in some of the episodes coming. All right, thank you for hanging with me for this, at least a two-hour episode. I will see you in the next one with Kate West as we talk about her growing up experiences in the stay-at-home daughter's homeschooling, Doug Wilson-inspired environment. That's a fascinating episode. Then we're going to come back and look at the many scandals attached to Doug Wilson. And as always, if you have any thoughts, comments, questions on this episode, you can always get a hold of me. Follow me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can find me on my public Facebook page. You can send me an email through that or a, a direct message, a PM. And again, thank you to the Examining Doug Wilson Facebook page and Twitter account for giving me a lot of good resources, a lot of good tips in, in terms of where to go, where to look for information about Doug Wilson. I'll see you on the next episode with Kate West. <laughs>